O God, who wonderfully created and yet more wonderfully restored the dignity of human nature, grant that we may share the divine life of him who humbled himself to share our humanity. O your Son, Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Please be seated. Okay, that wonderful hymn is actually from the 6th century, so Christians have been singing that for nearly 1,500 years. Uh, that's uh, one of the great translations of uh, the Anglican John Mason Neal, uh, who was a really kind of eccentric guy, but, but did a lot of hymn, hymn translations. And I'll just say this, you wouldn't recognize Christmas without the Christmas carols of John Mason Neal. You would, you'd just be like, what is this? This is crazy. Uh, so, it's all there. Um, let's turn in the catechism to, um, goodness, we had just finished up the section on Scripture, and so now we're going to turn to question 38. We're going to turn to the creed proper. Um, remember, the first part of this catechism all focuses on the Apostles' Creed. Um, why is it called the Apostles' Creed? Yes, yes, that's, that's basically it. It, it. it communicates the apostolic faith. That's the answer. Um, and and uh, this is, how do we know that it's apostolic? I'm not, trying to tr- I'm not trying to trick anybody. Because it's founded upon Scripture, right? It's, it's all taken from Scripture. So the whole of the creed is taken from Scripture. Um, uh, everything that's in the creed is, is biblical. Um, and we're going to see all of that start to stack up through this, through this study. The first article of the creed uh, deals with faith in God. Um, the very first thing you say is, I believe in God. Um, and, uh, and as we track through this, remember that the Apostles' Creed has been throughout history a baptismal creed, meaning, and it's actually been the baptismal creed, meaning that um, in some churches early on, something like this was recited by the one being baptized as they were being baptized. So it was something like this. You would go to the cathedral late at night, night before Easter Sunday, you'd, you'd be stripped naked, put into a pool, right? And you would be asked, after being covered head to toe with oil, um, do you believe in God the Father? And you would say, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And you would recite that first article of the creed. And the bishop would say, then I baptize you in the name of the Father. And he'd push you down into the water and hold you there until you squirm a little bit and then pull you back up. Do you believe in God the Son? Okay. Then you'd go back down again. Um, but this threefold uh, baptism, I was just reading wonderful lectures by Cyril of Jerusalem written in the fourth century, and he says this corresponds, these, these three immersions correspond to the three days that Jesus spent in the tomb. Why, why would he say that? Because baptism joins us not only to, the, to Christ's burial and resurrection, his death and resurrection, but also joins us to the triune God in whose name we're baptized. So by professing faith in the, in the God who is Trinity, right, in the, in the Apostles' Creed, which covers all three persons of the Trinity, um, it's combined, it's part and parcel with this baptism. Okay, so that's important to keep in mind. All right, I believe in God. Question 38, who is God? God is one divine being, eternally existing in three divine persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. 
This is the Holy Trinity. We'll say more about the Trinity as time goes on because this is something which we actually see as we develop out the three persons. Um, but God is one, one, right? Remember, this is at the very beginning of the giving of the law to Israel. Um, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is what? One. one. Yeah, one. <laughs> That's it, one. Um, and it's on that basis that you shall have no other gods before me. In fact, in, in the Jewish reckoning of the law and the numbering of the law, that's the first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me is the second commandment. The first commandment is that God is one. Um, but we say that God is one divine being, eternally existing, meaning what? Was there ever a time when God was not? No. Was there ever a time when any of the three persons of the Trinity was not? Um, in fact, God exists outside of time, or rather you could say time exists within God, <laughs> and, and, um, and uh, uh, God exists in three divine persons. Um, of course, this is where that language gets kind of mysterious and strange, but, but how many persons do you have? One, I hope. <laughs> one, I've got one person, uh, I'm one being, I have one person, I relate to the world in one person, that's it, that's how I do things, I have one person, right? Uh, my name is Lee Nelson, good to meet you. <laughs> but, but God exists eternally in three persons, and we're going to say more about that as this goes on. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, this is the Holy Trinity. Um, the faith, the apostolic faith holds out to us belief in this triune God. He reveals himself as the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Okay. According to Holy Scripture, what is the nature and character of God? God is love, sharing an eternal communion of love between the three persons. God loves and mercifully redeems fallen creation. God is holy. God is utterly transcendent, good, righteous, and opposed to all sin and evil. God's love is holy. God's holiness is loving. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the fullest expression of God's whole character. All right, we're going to break that down. But, but the Apostle John tells us in 1 John chapter 4, verse 16, it's marked right there, that God is love. Um, this is uh, the nature and character of God is love. And in fact, the great theologians have all spoken of how between the three persons, there exists this eternal relationship between the persons of love, this eternal community and fellowship of love. Okay? Um, this communion of love um, is... Well, is best borne out, and, and I've been seeing this lately, in just kind of the simple biblical language that's used about this relationship, right? Um, you know, it's, it's kind of been fashionable lately to think that the doctrine of the Trinity shows up about 300 years after Scripture. Um, but in, in fact, the way it is, is that Scripture speaks about who God is and who God has revealed himself to be, uh, in, especially in Jesus Christ, but also through the Holy Spirit. And you get this. This is all there. So think about it. Who is Jesus Christ? You don't. Well, we're going to talk about this later, but, you know, I'm going to cover those catechesis, so, you know, I don't fault you for not knowing it yet. <laughs> Jesus Christ is the Son of God, right? Okay? If God is perfect, a perfect Father, right? God the Father is perfect. What does he do to the Son? Or for the Son? He loves him, okay? And the Son being perfect, what does he do in response? He loves the Father, right? Okay, so far so good, right? And, and, uh, and if we speak of the Holy Spirit, which is, which is sent forth from the Father through the Son, okay, and is in fact uh, this, this relation of love is, is carried forth by the Holy Spirit, then we can say that this, this, is, this is at the very heart of who God is, the very heart of the Trinity, 
God loves and mercifully redeems fallen creation. God doesn't love and redeem fallen creation out of some necessity, okay? It's not as though uh, um, uh, the world sort of exists concurrently with God and God needs the world to be redeemed in order to be right. Uh, the world exists within God's being, okay? Um, the, world, the world subsists by, God, by God's power. Um, as Scripture tells us that all things are held together uh, through Jesus Christ. Um, and God loves and mercifully redeems fallen creation, uh, not out of necessity, but what? Out of love, right? Um, it, love, love doesn't operate out of necessity, right? I don't love my wife because it's necessary to me, although it is. I mean, I, would, I don't know what I'd do with myself if I didn't love my wife, and I'd, I'd be in trouble. <laughs> but but uh, listen, that's not the thing that women want to hear, by the way. It's not like, I love you out of necessity. Um, no, it's, it's I love you out of out of who I am, right? Who I, who I am. Um, love is at the, very, at the very center of who God is. God is holy. Um, well, what do we mean by holy? God is different from you, okay? That's what we're saying. God does not like you. Um, if anything, we're like God. God is not like us. Um, God is holy. God is, God, is, um, God is transcendent. And that's what we say here. God is utterly transcendent, good, righteous, and opposed to all sin and evil. And then there's this wonderful phrase, which I love. God's love is holy. God's holiness is loving. And the Lord Jesus Christ is the fullest expression of God's whole character. Um, there's often this kind of confusion when we think about God. We say, we say things like this. If God was really good then why does, if God is really good, then why does evil exist? And what you've got to understand is that everything that is, if you think about it, just for a second, everything that is exists because of God's will. Everything. Um, and so everything that is within God's character, as holy and loving, um, we, can, we can see that that's what it is. Um, uh, and sometimes we think, just in our feebleness of our minds, like, God's love isn't terribly holy, or God's holiness isn't terribly loving, but these work together. Um, everything that uh, God does comes out of, his, out of his character, and we see this perfectly in the fullest revelation of God in Jesus Christ. Um, one of my favorite authors, John of the Cross, says that in one word, Jesus, God has spoken everything that needs to be said. He has nothing else to say to us but Jesus. Um, as the fullest expression of that. Um, so one way to put it is, if you want to know what God is like, who do you look to? Yeah, Jesus. Particularly as, we, as he's revealed in Scripture. And so we're going to say more about that as we talk about the person of Jesus Christ, but we're going to dwell a bit on God the Father Almighty here. So question 40, who is God the Father? God the Father is the first person of the Holy Trinity, from whom the Son is eternally begotten, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds. Okay, so... We're thinking biblically about this here. God the Father is the first person of the Holy Trinity. Now, is this about um, chronological order first? Can't be, right? That's not, that's not how it works. Um, what we mean by first is simply first, the first one we talk about, right? Um, first in terms of, of how we speak about the Triune God. It's not about quality. It doesn't mean first is in better than the others. Um, it, it simply is 
first. That's it. Um, it's kind of like this. I have a first child, a second child, a third child, a fourth child, a fifth child, and a sixth child. Does the fact that I have a sixth child mean the sixth child is less than the first or the second or the third? Not at all, right? I don't sit there and say when they come down, uh, downstairs, oh, you're my favorite child. You're first. No, I don't say that. Um, they, they all are equal. Um, and there's an understanding in the, in the Christian understanding of the Trinity of the equality of the persons, okay? But we say first, uh, and we also say first because of the relation within the Trinity, right? Which is that the, which is that the Son is eternally begotten, okay? This is direct kind of, uh, in a sense, it's procreative language that gets, that gets elevated up, right? So if you have a kid, what, what did you do? You, you begat the kid, right, in, in biblical language, right? You, you begat this child. But does it work that way with God? Not at all, because it's not like it's something that began or ended. The, the Son is eternally begotten of the Father. Um, and that means that they share in the same nature, and this is why Jesus Christ is called in Scripture the Son of God. Um, and the Holy Spirit eternally proceeds from the Father, meaning that uh, the Father sends forth constantly the Holy Spirit. Why do you call the first of the three divine persons Father? Our Lord Jesus Christ called God Father and taught his disciples to do the same. And St. Paul teaches that God adopts believers as his children and heirs in Christ, sending his Holy Spirit into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Jesus is asked by his disciples, what? Lord, teach us to pray as John taught his disciples. And what does he say to them? Yeah, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father, who art in heaven. Okay. Um, now, we don't quite register how revolutionary that kind of prayer would have been. Jews were not in the habit of calling God their father. Um, but Jesus teaches his disciples to do this. Well, how does this work? One of my favorite sermons I've ever read is a sermon of St. Augustine on the Lord's Prayer, and it, I love it. He, he basically says it like this. He says, earthly fathers, when they find out they're having another baby... You know what their first reaction is? Okay. Anybody shown their husband a pregnancy test in their lives? Right? They know the reaction. Is it always first of, oh, great, we're having a baby, hallelujah. What's, what's, there's another reaction, too. If it's not that, there's another one, which is what? How are we going to do this? <laughs> it's, it's like, oh, no, now another mouth to feed and, and more college to pay for and oh. And you run around, it's like, oh no, this is, this is going to be hard. Um, Augustine says, God is not like that. He doesn't sit there and say, how are we going to feed another mouth? Why? Because God the Father has eternal abundance, right? And, and Augustine, image, he, 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 he meditates on Jesus on the cross. And he thinks about Jesus looking up to the Father and saying something like this. Father, you think you got room for one more? What's the answer? Yes. The answer is always yes. And so we say with Jesus, our Father. Um, because, as Paul says this so strongly, especially in Romans chapter 8 and Galatians chapter 4, we are adopted. The language used in Scripture is that of adoption. This is powerful language because in the Roman world, um, the father of the family, you know, the old Latin, paterfamilias, could adopt anyone he chose. 
A man in this position could adopt older men as his sons. He could adopt anybody. And they became his son. Not in some sort of like legal fiction manner, right? Because it actually gets carried forth to like the absolute nth degree. And the father could actually choose the placement of the adopted sons. You could adopt a son and say, you have pride of place over my own naturally begotten sons. Um, What's happening here is that we're given, Paul uses this language constantly, we're given the right of heirs. Um, Jesus Christ is, of course, called the firstborn of all creation, meaning that Jesus Christ has the right of all creation. He has the birthright of all creation. Um, All creation belongs to him and is, in fact, made for him. But what does he choose to do? He chooses to share this inheritance that is his with us. Okay, so we become, um, as, as, as remind, we're reminded of this constantly in Scripture, we become sons of God. Now, I want to say just a little bit about what this means and what, where this comes from. This comes directly out of specifically Jewish expectations in the Old Testament about what this would be like. Because think about what, think about what, that, what that old covenant was. It's spoken to Abraham. What's the covenant with Abraham? Do you remember? What's, what? Yeah. I will be your God. You will be my people. That's the basic covenant. Um, it's essentially a way of saying everything that I have is yours. And everything you have is what? Mine. It belongs to me. That's a covenant in basic language. It's an exchange of persons. Um, uh, in, the, in the ancient world, if I made a covenant with, let's say, with uh, Craig Robinson here, uh, I would say something like, uh, you know, Craig, you can have unfettered access to my house in Waco for, and in exchange, I'll have unfettered hunting access to your land, and I can take a few of your cattle, <laughs> right? We've made a covenant. And then, you know, we'd probably exchange some children in the marriage. You know, we'd have some marriages, some intermarriage between our children. And, and do you see what's going on here? Craig and I are now family. We belong to each other in this, in this familial way. It is in Jesus Christ that this covenant is carried forward, and God gives us everything that he is. And at the center of the very being of God the Father is this, that of being a father. Um, so God the Father becomes a father to Abraham, um, and this is this is that this is how it's made good. Well, uh, we also see in Scripture. This is another thing that happens in, in Galatians, in particular, is that we know that we're sons and daughters of God. Why? Paul actually just just kind of lays it all on the table, and he says. We know it because we have the Holy Spirit crying out within us, Abba, Father, speaking to the Father in these intimate terms. Um, Father, even when we forget how to pray, when we forget what to pray, what happens? The Holy Spirit intercedes within us to the Father. Um, so this language of adoption is, is, uh, is in Paul's understanding, and he's, you know, wrote the bulk of the New Testament, so you got to listen, right? Uh, he, says, he, he says that this is, this is how that familial relationship, this, 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 um, this right that we have as heirs of the Father is, is shown forth, is in the Holy Spirit being sent into our hearts to cry out to the Father. Okay. What do you mean when you call God Father? When I call God Father, I acknowledge that I was created by God for a relationship with him. 
that God made me in his image, that I trust in God as my protector and provider, and that I put my hope in God as his child and heir in Christ. Has anyone in this room ever expected an inheritance? Anybody? That's too bad. Uh, let me tell you what it's like to expect an inheritance, all right, if you don't know. I mean, uh, think about it. Let's say, that, let's say that you've got a grandmother who, who, is, who is scrimped and saved her whole life. She's got millions of dollars, right? And, and you're having a hard time financially. Yeah, everything's tough. It's tough to pay the bills, tough to pay your mortgage. But you know that when grandma dies, and you don't want her to die, you, you love grandma. I mean, you're, not gonna, you're not praying for her death, you're not praying for her early death, but, but you know that when she dies, she's going to leave you some money. And so how does that change your life now? Yeah, you look forward to this moment when you're going to miss your grandmother very, ba- very badly. It's going to be hard. But she's going to leave you a better life, right? Like, you're going to pay off the mortgage. You're going to get a new car, probably. You're going to go do all these things. Like, you're going to be able to put your kids through college. Like, all these things are going to happen because you have this, you have this inheritance. We, when we call God Father, we're looking forward to... What is his becoming ours fully? This, this great glory. Um, I acknowledge that I was created by God for relationship with him. We often water this word down so much, but the relationship which you and I were made for is nothing less than the relationship which Jesus Christ has with the Father eternally. This, this basking in the glory of God uh, is, is to be ours. Um, I, I never tire of saying this. When we Christians speak of Jesus Christ ascending to the right hand of the Father, and we'll say more about this when we get to this section, but when we speak of Jesus Christ ascending in his body to the right hand of the Father, we mean that with human eyeballs, he beholds the glory of God. Yeah? That's what's, that's what's there for us. That's the relationship. Um, one of my, my, my friend who was a part of writing this, uh, this catechism, you may know of him, uh, Jim Packer, uh, was asked once by a group of high school students, and I was there for this when he gave this answer, what does it mean to be made in the image of God? And he went on this like 10-minute tear, and it was like majestic and wonderful and glorious. But at the end of the day, he said, to be made in the image of God means that we were made to be like Jesus. You see, don't think about looking like God. Don't think about uh, being creative like God. All that's there. What, what's really there is that we're made to be like Jesus, to behold the glory of God with our eyes, to, to have that level of relationship with him. Um, and so when we call God Father, we say that, that we are uh, created for that, that we're made in his image, and that we trust in God as a protector and provider. Um, as you get older, you start to not think about your father in that light as protector and provider because what do you think now? I'm taking care of myself, thank you very much. <laughs> but the status of a Christian is one who is always a child before God. And what do children do in relation to their father? They ask all the time, Daddy, I'm hungry. It's like, it's good to meet you, hungry. I'm your dad. <laughs> you know, old dad jokes. Uh, but, but it's to say that, that they're constantly asking, constantly making petitions, constantly have wants, constantly have needs, and they don't worry about making those known. 
Um, this is to be our relationship with the Father, to be one who looks to him as protector and provider. Um, it also means that we put our hope in God as his child and heir in Christ. Um, this relates directly to what it means to be one who is an inheritor of the kingdom of God. Um, we look forward to this, to this, uh, to this uh, inheritance that is ours. Now, I don't mean that in the wrong way. Please hear what I'm saying. I'm not saying that you, that you look forward to being uh, materially blessed and wealthy. We know the, 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 let me just say it. The, the prosperity gospel is heresy, okay? That's not what we're talking about. Well, what I am talking about is this, that the hope which we have is not in this world. Um, the hope which we have is rooted in um, becoming one who inherits what, what, is, what belongs to Jesus, Okay. Which is what? Not just the vision of God, not just this, but, but Jesus is an inheritor of all of creation. Um, what the church has to look forward to is, is to inherit the earth, right? What does Jesus say? The meek shall inherit the earth. Okay. So we look forward to that. Um, and that is the basis of hope. Let me tell you something about hope. Hope is so terribly misunderstood in, in Christian circles. Hope is often confused with something like this. It's like, hope means that I think things are going to get better. Listen, you can be somebody who faces a, a near certain death and still have hope. Yeah? You, you know people who've been on their deathbed and they live by hope, even though they know they're going to die. People who think they're probably going to die can still have hope. Right? People who face all kinds of difficulty in this life can still live by hope. In fact, they'll have more of it. Why? Because what is hope? I love what the letter to the Hebrews says about hope. Hope is a sure and steadfast anchor of the soul. What do anchors do? Nobody here been on a ship? A cruise, maybe? <laughs> what does the ship do? What does the, what does the anchor do? It holds the ship in place. Why? Yeah, so it doesn't get tossed against the rocks and destroyed and shipwrecked. Um, this is to say that hope keeps us from getting tossed around um, by the wind, by change, by all manner of, uh, of things that, that assault us in this life. Um, we put our hope in God the Father um, for, um, for every good thing. Why do you say that God the Father is almighty? I call the Father Almighty because He has power over everything and accomplishes everything He wills. Together with His Son and Holy Spirit, the Father is all-knowing and ever-present in every place. This is where we get to the, the three omnis of God, uh, which are such hot, they're so hotly debated in philosophical circles today, uh, but, but we hold to these strongly. God is what? Omnipotent, right? Accomplishes everything He wills has power over everything, is also omniscient, meaning all-knowing, and omnipresent, right? Um, and sometimes, you know, if you take an intro to philosophy class, the, the professor will, will say something like, well, obviously these are contradictory. Um, but, but, you know, Rob's back there, very competent philosopher, laughing a little bit and chuckling like, yeah, of course they're contradictory <laughs> by your terms. But, but, but here's all we mean by that. What we mean is that God accomplishes everything he wills, okay? Um, and together, and this is together with the Son and the Holy Spirit, um, is all-knowing, mean knows everything, 
everything that is, everything that will be, um, and is ever-present. Now, this does not, you don't want to get this confused, like, by saying uh, tree is God or that tree is God. Like, that's not what, omnip- that's not what omnipresent means, means, not at all. Um, it's not to confuse the nature of things with the nature of God. It's just simply to say that God is present throughout all creation. Um, present here, present there, present everywhere. Okay. Um, pervasive throughout all creation. All right. So far so good? Should we continue on? Okay. This often feels like you're in the weeds, but it's, it's, good, it's a good time. Why do you call God the Father Creator? I call God the Father Creator because he is the sole designer and originator of everything that exists. He creates and sustains all things through his word and gives life to all creatures through his spirit. Um, the, the prologue to the Gospel of John says, um, through him, meaning referring to the word, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God, and the same was in the beginning with God. And then he says, all things were made what? Through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. Okay, <laughs> I memorized that at one point. <laughs> um, very satisfying to do so. Um, meaning that all things hold together, as Paul says, by the word of, of God's power. Um, that, that um, To put it kind of in a hokey way, uh, Jesus is like the glue that holds creation together and keeps it from falling apart. Um, all things are created and sustained through the word of God. Well, how do we see this in Scripture? Do we see it in Genesis 1? How does God create? He speaks. So it's this creative word which brings things into being, which brings things to exist. Um, And life is given. Get this. How does God make man and woman? Let's talk about man first and then woman. Forms them out of what he forms Adam out of what mud, right? And he he you kind of think about it like a sandcastle. That's what I usually think about. It's like a little man sandcastle, right? And what does what does God do? He breathes into the nostrils. Um, he he uh, he pours out his spirit on this on this pile of dust. And what does it become? And we actually read this language. And and Adam became a living being. Okay. Then the woman is created. God puts Adam into a deep sleep, pulls what out of his side? It sounds painful. A rib, right? And, she, and forms out of the rib woman and breathes into that. And she becomes a living being. Okay. Um, that is to say that uh, uh, the, the Old Testament in particular, but the New Testament as well, look upon the, the breath of God, the spirit of God as being what gives us life. Now, consider this for a moment. We are very advanced scientific people. We know how we have life, don't we? I breathe into my lungs. My lungs take on oxygen. That oxygen is pumped through my blood system, uh, bringing, bringing oxygen to all my vital organs, including my brain, and my heart keeps beating, and my brain, my brain waves keep going, and I'm alive. Really? Is that it? I mean, okay, if you're a materialist, fine, right? Okay, fine. But, but consider what that means for just a second. What does that say about death and life and all of that? What Scripture holds out for us is this understanding that God himself sustains all life 
that in fact what keeps your heart pumping and your brain waves going is God's firm intention and creation to keep you in that place. Okay? Um, so, uh, we're sustained in that way. And we call God the Father, not, not merely creator. And this is really uh, key because um, many people today have sort of taken on, even those who claim to be Christians, have taken on a kind of uh, soft deism as the way they see the world. And soft deism is something like this. It's like, well, God created the world. Okay, that's pretty cool. Uh, and, uh, and he sort of lets it go and uh, doesn't really do much. The world's sort of left to its own devices. Uh, you know, when things get really bad, I pray. You know what I'm talking about, right? Okay. When, when, uh, when my girlfriend breaks up with me, I pray. Okay. But that's it, right? There's no thought that God is continually working in creation to hold it all together. There's no thought that, that all of this is, is, uh, is sustained by his power. Right, um, so so this is this is the Christian understanding is that all of creation holds together because God is underlying it constantly. Okay, how does recognizing God as Creator affect your understanding of His creation? I acknowledge that God made for His own glory everything that exists. He created human beings in His image, male and female, to serve Him as creation stewards, managers, and caretakers. He entrusts His good creation to us as a gift to enjoy and a responsibility to fulfill. So we not only acknowledge that God made everything that exists for his glory, and I'm going to say a lot about that in the sermon today, so I don't want to spoil it for you, but, but essentially what we mean by saying that God created everything for his glory is that everything in creation is meant to give esteem and honor to God. And not only that, but to, but to, uh, to uh, exalt God but not only that, I love what the Hebrew word for, uh, for glory is. It's, it's kabod. It, it means weight. There's a weightiness in creation. Um, well, how do we see this? Anybody ever been to Yosemite? Okay. I mean, listen, if you don't go to Yosemite and go in the south entrance and you drive down that road and you look and you look straight down Yosemite, Karen knows what I'm talking about, you look down into that valley. She's from right by Yosemite. Uh, you look right into that valley and the first words out of your mouth should be, oh my God. There's nothing else to say. It's so utterly glorious that that's what you think. Because, because you think, I couldn't make that. It's, listen, before you die, you got to go do this. It's, it's amazing, right? It's absolutely amazing. I'm sure that Kara can hook you up with somebody to stay with. <laughs> but but it's, it's out of control, and you think, oh, my goodness. Um, okay, so uh, everything for his glory, everything that exists. He created human beings in his image. Remember what it means to be made in the image of God. It means we're made to be like Jesus. Every human being in this whole world um, is a bearer of the glory of God. I love what C.S. Lewis says about this. Outside of the Blessed Sacrament, there is nothing more holy than the person sitting right next to you uh, because they have this, 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 this glory endowed to them by the Father. Um, and to serve him as creation stewards, I love the language of stewardship. Um, every time we go on vacation, we leave our house with a house sitter, and the house, is the house sitter is basically a steward, right? What do we say to the house sitter as we leave? Oh, you know what it is. 
the instructions. Help yourself to the pantry and what's in the refrigerator. You know, if she's 21 or older, we say, help yourself to the bar. You know, you're welcome to it. It's all yours. Live in the house as if it was yours, right? Make decisions as if you were us, right? And things get taken care of. Um, And hopefully, you know, you come home and the house is the way you left it. (laughs) Maybe even better. Uh, but, But that's what a steward does. Um, we, we are to serve as, as creation stewards, and in this heavily industrialized time, it's harder and harder to think about that. Um, but, but there is a sense in which we need to be very careful about, about stewarding creation. Um, but we have to balance that with we can actually use creation for our benefit. Okay? So we have to be careful not to fall into the two different pitfalls on either side. As managers and caretakers, um, that language is used as well in Scripture. God entrusts his good creation to us as a gift to enjoy, right? So think about it. Noah gets off the ark, and what's the first thing he does? I love this. He plants a vineyard. Why would you do that? To make wine, yeah, because what's life without wine, Okay, and and you know how how can you how can you enjoy a feast, right? And and the other thing about a vineyard is, it's priority number one because it takes a few years for that vineyard to produce fruit. All the other tasks that I, that Noah has, he'll get to them later. But he plants a vineyard because he knows that it's his it's his responsibility in a sense to enjoy the fruit of creation, right? I mean, there it is. Um, what else? Because, it's, because it's, a, it's, it's a gift to enjoy, it's also a responsibility to fulfill. Now, what is responsibility in a basic sense? Yeah, it's what's yours, right? I mean, here's, here's the thing that, that, um, that, that should stand out to us, is that there are things in creation that we can properly say are ours, Personal ownership is not an evil thing in Scripture. It's, it's a good thing, right? It's mine, not yours. That's the whole basis of the commandment, thou shalt not steal, is that we have personal property. Um, and that's ours. It belongs to us. It's ours uh, to, to guard, ours to steward, ours to care for. Um, it is no one else's, right? It belongs to us. It's our responsibility. Okay. Um, what does it mean that God made both heaven and earth? It means that all things, whether visible or invisible, physical or spiritual, were brought into being out of nothing by the word of the eternal God. The Nicene Creed says that God the Father is the creator of all things, visible and invisible, seen and unseen. Now, in the translation of the Creed that we use now, we sort of simplify that, which is foolhardy, I say, uh, because those four words mean totally different things. Um, Seen and unseen means, get this, things that we see and things that we don't see, okay? Visible and invisible means things that we can see and things that we cannot see. Those are different words, okay? They intend different things. But those four categories basically cover everything that is. Would you agree with that? I mean, a thing can only be one of those four things to us. Um, We say that God created absolutely everything, Everything fits into those categories. Things visible and invisible, I say seen and unseen, that's physical and spiritual sort of falls apart, but, but we'll, we'll, we'll leave it there. Um, it means that all things were made by God. 
Um, most people today uh, intuitively believe that uh, the only things that really exist are the things that I can touch, taste, feel, smell, etc. And Christians believe something, they, they believe, yes, but not only. We believe that God created absolutely everything, even the things we can't see or the things we don't see. Um, and that all, we say this, all were brought into being out of nothing. This is that wonderful Latin phrase uh, that the fathers create uh, because they need it, <laughs> because it, it adequately explains what creation is to pagans who don't think of it that way. Out of nothing he creates. Most pagans believe that the world was created out of pre-existent matter that sort of exists out there in the ether, and the gods or the demiurges sort of put it together in some recognizable fashion. The church fathers say, reading scripture, what? Nope, no pre-existent matter. Because if there was pre-existent matter, what would that be? It would be God. <laughs> so, nope. All creation, everything that's made, is made out of nothing. Ex nihilo, out of nothing. Um, by the word of the eternal God. Okay. You ready for the next part? I think we've got time. We can do this next. We can, we can get a little bit further. Yeah, we can do it. If God made the world good, why do I sin? Adam and Eve rebelled against God, thus bringing into the world pain, fruitless toil, alienation from God and each other, and death. I have inherited a fallen and corrupted human nature, and I too sin and fall short of God's glory. Um, what we see in the garden in the story of the fall, we call it the fall for a reason, is that Adam and Eve um, foment rebellion against God. What are they told in the garden? There's one, there's one rule. What is it? Okay, let's go back. I want, you to, I, want, I want you to know what Scripture is. So, is it said, hey, by the way, guys, there's this tree. Don't eat of that one. Nope, that's not the command. Try again. What is it? Eat of the fruit of what? Any tree of the garden, except for the, tree of, the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So they can eat any fruit they want, except for that one. So there's this tree. And what does God say about the fruit of that tree? If you eat of it, you will surely, what? Die. You'll die. Okay. So there's something in the story. This, this, is, good. this is good writing, right? It's there's something about the knowledge of good and evil that brings what? Death. Now, why death? Why would knowledge of good and evil be such a bad thing? Because of who Adam and Eve were made to be. They were made to be innocent. They were made to trust God. They were made to uh, operate in creation um, as if this kind of cosmic battle wasn't raging around them, right? And yet, what happens? It does come to roost in the garden. Um, and what is it that Satan says to them? Oh, come on. You're not going to die. In fact, when you eat of it, you'll be like God. You'll know good and evil. And Eve basically says, that doesn't sound so bad, does it? I mean, to be like God, that'd be good. I think I could deal with that. No, you can't. So she, what does she do? She eats of the fruit. Um, and what happens immediately? Oh. She says, her eyes were opened. Were her eyes closed before? 
No, they were open. What's being said here? There's a perception in her that's, un, that's, that's unveiled. She can see a way that she hadn't been able to see before. What does she see? Well, she, knows, she knows good and evil now. And the first thing she perceives about herself is what? Oh, shoot, I'm naked. <laughs> um, and what does she do? She and Adam do this too. Adam does this as well. They go over to the fig tree, they gather fig leaves, they, uh, they take them down and they sort of sew, I love the word aprons or breeches or whatever it is, <laughs> for them to wear, right? And, uh, and, and they cover themselves. But they don't, they'd only cover their bodies so they don't see each other and, and they, don't, they don't think shamefully about each other. Oh, by the way, shame, and I've been saying this lately in preaching, shame is almost the direct opposite of responsibility. Think about it for a moment. Shame tells us how we should feel about something, not what we should do about it. So what does she say? They say, we feel a certain ickiness about our bodies. And so instead of taking responsibility for that, we're just going to cover it all up. Okay? Um, so they, they, they haven't taken responsibility for what's theirs. Um, and so what happens through this? I'm just going to fill it all out. What's the curse? In the most basic sense. I mean, there's lots of things given. Okay, well, they're definitely going to die now. Okay, that's done. We knew that. What else? Adam's going Adam's to be committed to fruitless toil on the earth. He's going he's to have to work for food. Eve's going to have pain in childbirth. But she's also going to have some victory in this life. She's going she's to trample on the serpent at some point. Um, uh, there's, there's what's called the, the Proto-Evangelion in this text, in, in Genesis chapter 3. It's this, it's this first gospel, so to speak, that this, this defeat of death through the fall will not be forever. It's temporary. But in essence, here's what happens. They're exposed to death. Their children will also die. Um, meaning that you and I have, uh, we suffer from a terminal disease called sin. It's miserable. It's awful. Um, and we all have it. And we all carry it. And our kids will get it. And <laughs> there's nothing you can do about it. 